0: to Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Hi, El, good morning. Good morning, Yosefa. It's great to be here with you. Uh, today, in our third episode of the series, we're going to be unpacking the idea of secondary characters and their literary function. Sometimes these characters are anonymous, sometimes they, they are not, and we're going to unpack that that factor as well. Um, but really, any any narrative you, you read uh, in Tanakh, you'll come up against these characters, and sometimes they have a tremendous amount of meaning to offer us.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are certainly some books that have more secondary characters than others. Um, I think, for example, Sefer Schmoel, which just has a plethora of secondary characters, people who pop in and pop out and have just a really cameo role in the story. So it, it is interesting to ask what they add to the story. What's their purpose? Do you know what kind of meaning they, they insert into the story?
0: Yeah. So let, let's jump right in. We're going to really bring a few examples and I think each of them offer something different. And what I do think is important is that while we'll, we'll focus on a number of central features that sometimes characterize a secondary characters, really each of them needs to be Understood in their own context. There's no really broad-reaching rule. There are certain principles that I think are helpful and informative, but each each context needs its own analysis.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, you know, I think the other book that has really a lot of secondary characters is Zafer Sheet, right? And and maybe one of the most well-known and sort of curious figures is an unnamed figure. You mentioned that not all secondary characters are unnamed, and not all unnamed characters are, are secondary. secondary yes. That's a good point. Um and that's also an important point but one of the most curious kind of you know, pop-in figures is this man in Bereshit Perak Lamed Zion, who finds Yosef wandering around when Yosef is going to look for his brothers, right? And, of course, you know, Yaakov has sent Yosef to to go and, you know, ask after his brothers, even though, of course, Yosef and his brothers are not really on speaking terms right now. And as Yosef is on his way, the pasuk tells us, Vaim tsa'ehu ish, a man finds him. Right, he's sort of you know wandering around in the fields, and the Ish asks him, "Ma tivakesh? What are you looking for?" And he says, "Et achai anochi vakesh, Right, tell me, roim? Where are they?" And the man tells him, and you know what this really very short episode indicates to us is that Yosef is so fundamentally. Alienated from his brothers, that he can't find them. He can't find them without help, right? You know, there's that. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the beginning of Sefer Shir Hashirim, where the Reaya is, uh, you know, she's she, she's going out to find her Dode, right, her beloved, and she says Hagidali she nafshi echatir e. Right. Mm-hmm. She says, tell me where you are. Where are you pastoring? Where can I find you? And what's his response? He says to her, I <laughs> have right? He says, if you don't know yourself, you've got to figure out not just you know, um, mine and your relationship, you have to figure out how to, how to get here. Right. right? You
0: can't externalize this knowledge. It needs to be something that's inside of you. I mean, yeah. there he's playing hard to get. That's sort of always how I I, te- <laughs> I teach that passage, but, but going back to Yosef, there's something also there that when you're so alienated from your family, you have to ask somebody on the outside where your family is, right? It's sort of, again, this externalization of his relationship with them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, it really shows us how How deep the divide is, this, this anonymous ish that becomes the almost mediator, the one who can help Yosef,
0: you know, to find his brothers. What I will say also about that passage is that many of us are familiar with the Midrash's, uh, desire to want to identify the character. And I think we mentioned that in a previous episode where we spoke about the, the conservation, the law of conservation of personalities, that the Midrash loves to find identities for these characters. And sometimes, uh, and that's, Very meaningful. And sometimes it's also very important to remember that, that the Tanakh presented that character as anonymous. I think also for a particular reason here. Can you sort of speak to the anonymity of that character here? I mean, why couldn't he just have had a name? Because sometimes their names are not particularly significant.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think even more so, it shows how, you know, how irrelevant his persona is to the story he's just a linking right he's there in order to show us how how far Yosef is from his brothers and that he needs you know someone to get him there um you know, Chazal, not just, there, there's another principle involved here, Chazal, abhor a vacuum, right? In other mm-hmm. words, you know, there's this idea that anyone who's anonymous needs to be identified. And so you're right. I mean, that's a very important, um, a very important principle in, in Chazal.
0: Yeah, and identifying them doesn't make them more of a central character. It just makes them part of an identifiable web of people that I think Chazal are often trying to, to bring to the fore. That everyone is connected somehow. They're not. They're not just pointlessly being mentioned in the text itself. Yeah. Um, but I think here the pointlessness is is part of the, of the of the literary intention of that narrative of realizing how far Yosef has really has really gone from his family. Uh, okay, so let, let's, let's move on to another example also.
1: Yeah, okay, so um, I, I think also one of the really kind of bizarre figures in um, Sefer Shmuel, and as I mentioned, there are really quite a few uh Figures that sort of pop in to say for Shmuel, but one of the more bizarre figures is the Tabach, right? The the cook um, who appears at the very beginning of the Shaul story, right? And I'll just mention that the beginning of the Shaul story, where we see him going out to look for his donkeys, is a, kind of a similar situation as um, yeah, as Yosef, as Yosef yes. right? Because he's he's looking for his donkeys, and he can't find them, and he has this na'ar, right? This kind of, you know, attendant who seems to have everything that Shaul doesn't have, right? So that, you know, the attendant, is, Shaul says, well, you know, uh, let's go home, we can't find our donkeys. And the na'ar says, no, let's go, let's go see the Isha L'okim, right? So the na'ar knows about the Isha L'okim's presence while Shaul does not. And then, of course, Shaul says, well, you know, we have nothing to bring to him. I have no bread. I have no, you know, nothing, nothing to, no present, no gift to bring to him. And Na'ar says, well, I have money, right? So, you know, everything that Shaul seems to be lacking, in this case, I think the Na'ar is very much... a foil, a foil, right, yeah. for Shaul, and and seems to represent or seems to kind of highlight that which Shaul doesn't have. Uh, but what really is very similar to the Yosef story is that you know when they do go looking for this Ishael Kim, they don't find him that easily, and they have to stop a a group of young women coming from the well, right? That's highly significant. And ask them, you know, where's the Isha L'okim? We can't find him. Which suggests something about Shaul at the beginning of his journey, that he is funda- fundamentally disconnected from the Isha He can't find him on his own. So that's uh, similar to yeah. the Yosef story. Here it's it's his leadership capabilities that he has to externalize. Yeah, that Those are not what are in,
0: inherently inside of him at the moment. With Yosef, it's really the family dynamic. And here it's the... It's his, it's his leadership capabilities that his na'ar, his anonymous, you know, uh, arms bearer, however we want to translate that, he himself has those capabilities that seem so easy they seem so easy for him, but for Shaul, it's very, very difficult. So that's going to be his, you know, Yosef has to get over the family hurdle, uh, and, and Shaul will have to get over the leadership hurdle. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which yeah she, and just, which just to She does of- with,
0: some success and some failures. Right.
1: Uh, well, I mean, once he finds the Isha Elohim, that's going to help him to get to leadership. Yeah, it but it's ca- hard. It will for him. catapult. It will yeah. catapult
0: his uh, well, his journey.
1: Just to connect this to our last class, I know I'm going sort of backwards, but uh, Shaul says Ki Azal michaelenu. and we talked last time, you know, that there's no bread in our. In our clea, in our vessel, and we talked last time about both the significance of bread and of kelim. And what he's really saying is, is I don't have authority. I don't have bread in my, you know, in my, in my arsenal. Um, in any case, in the continuation of the story, of course, Shaul does meet Shmuel, and Shmuel's greeting of him is, is you know, profoundly shocking to Shaul, who thinks he's looking for his donkeys, but it. As it turns out, he's going to Receive kingship instead On that day, and you know, when when uh, Shmuel shows Shaul, you know, basically, I've been waiting For you here, and you know, come With me, and eat with me And Shaul walks into this room That is filled with 30 kruim, kruim are The invitees, right, so it's clear That, you know, Shmuel Has been waiting for Shaul But lest Shaul think that It's all a coincidence, right, and that, you know Shmuel and his thirty men have been, you know, sitting here about to eat, and and it's sort of a you know a lucky coincidence that Shaul happens upon them. Shmuel turns to the tabach, right, to the cook, and he says, "Tana etamana asher natatilach, right? Give him the portion that I gave to you, the one that I said put aside, right? And the and the uh, the tabach, right, the cook." Places it before Shaul, and he actually has a speaking role, which is also very striking. And he says to Shaul, "He fanecha echol ki karati." Right. So it seems to be that this is the Tabach speaking, and the Tabach says, "This is what I've put aside." It was, you know, it was it was a, a place there for you. We've been waiting for, this for you to get We've been here. waiting yeah. for this moment. And so the the cook's role ends up being very significant, right? Because he is the one that indicates to Shaul beyond any shadow of a doubt that they've been waiting for him and that this food it, it's been it's been kept on the side waiting for him, right? They've been keeping they've been, it hot yeah. for him, and that's it's a symbol also of the urgency. The, of 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 the task at hand, right? That that we're we're waiting for a leader to come. You are the one that God has directed us to give food too. And of course, this was the same Shaul. They said, well, I have no food, right? I have no, I have no bread in my arsenal. Now we're going to feed you. We're going to prepare you. We've been working on this. We've been laying the foundations of this. So, you know, this cook who seems to be really so kind of marginal, it turns out that he really is very important for indicating to Shaul, you know, what, what is about to happen and, 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 and that all of this has been premeditated and,
0: and mm-hmm. planned. Right. It's almost as if the, the tabach here feels to me like it's sort of like the handing over of the baton, right? So he's sort of, I think sometimes the, if I, to go back to the, the literary question, that sometimes the anonymity is there in order to facilitate a broader picture. And because if we get too engaged in their identity, we might lose the, Symbolic significance of the moment. This doesn't always work, but I think in this case this might work in this story. That so, in order, the fact that he doesn't have an identity allows us to realize that the the tabach is going to hand him something, and it's sort of the it's the officiating ceremony. I mean, there'll be another ceremony or two in the future, but it's the actual moment. And so, if we would identify him, we might get sort of we might lose lose sight, right? We might lose sight of of, of the the laden moment that is at this moment. And so sometimes I think the anonymity sort of furthers that sense in the narrative of keeping us on track and and understanding the symbolism of the moment.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, he's just an agent, right? He pushes forward the plot or he kind of, you know, sharpens our understanding of one aspect of the story, but he himself... Is not a relevant character. He's right, not that goes back to our character. first
0: episode where we spoke about the agent versus the developed character versus the flat character. So yeah. that's he's definitely an agent here. Another good example uh, when speaking about, I think. Secondary characters as foils—that they're really there to uh, oppose the central character. I think also Orpah is a great example from the Book of Ruth. Uh, Orpah really, I think, symbolizes what most women would have done in this situation. Uh, and when Naomi sort of starts off with this speech to try and convince them not to go with her, because there really is no logical reason why they shouldn't just try and start their life again uh, in their natural homeland. Initially, Ruth and Naomi, uh, Ruth and Orpah respond similarly. In Pasuk Tet, um, she says to them, uh, she, you know, God will hopefully continue to give you, a respite and to have a positive life. Um, initially, they kiss and they all cry in seemingly, a, a goodbye ceremony. And then they continue speaking. Um, and she says, please, and they, and they would, they want to come with her. And she says, I don't have any other children to give you in order to, for you to have, have sons. if you come with me, you know, you're not going to be very good shiddich material. So no one's really going to want to marry you. Uh, and at this point, um, Orpah decides differently. Uh, then uh, she continues on speaking to them, but eventually Orpah decides differently than Ruth. Uh, and here we have the classic formulation of uh, of opposition that Orpah kisses her mother-in-law in a goodbye, and Ruth clings to her. And so in that moment, we have sort of the the the, the separating of their paths. Um, and and after that we have the the moving speech of Ruth who responds to uh to her mother-in-law of antifki wherever lashuv alech alin amech ami right wherever you will wherever you sleep i will sleep whoever your gods are my gods um etc cetera, etc cetera. and in that that orpah does not have uh does not have a part uh because their paths have have already have already separated yeah Right of course, what I meant to say is that your your God is my God, not not in the plural um but really, you have here or pan who are also presented in the beginning of the narrative as really being uh of equal standing uh that they're both from uh from the moabite world uh and and they both marry into the family of uh, of nomi they're sort of completely unequal footing until that pivotal moment in their life when Orpah decides to do what is natural and logical and Root decides to do something that is, that utterly defies any, any logic and any Seeming, ben- seeming benefit for her future life. And so here, the, the character of Orpah is significant, really vis-a-vis how much she exemplifies. She accentuates how much Ruth is an exemplary character. Um, we don't know much about her. Um, the Midrash, of course, fills in certain details about her. But she just seems to be a regular a mobile woman. Um, and, and
1: particularly kind as well. I yeah. mean, she's clearly... Cares for her mother-in-law. And she lasted
0: since. through a few levels of her speech before she actually parted ways. Meaning, she doesn't just, you know, hear one word and say, "All right, I'm out of here." You know, she doesn't run away quickly. There's there's two levels of speech there before before she decides to part ways with Naomi. And again, in many ways, she does something that is very very understandable. Um, and so, really, her character serves to highlight uh Ruth and her exemplary character.
1: Yeah, I think that that's one of the reasons that Chazal are so harsh with character of Orpah, because as you said, I think when we read it without keeping in mind the Midrashim that we, that we learned, what we see is really a very reasonable and, and kind and compassionate young woman. And yet in order to really highlight and emphasize, you know, that, that distinction between them, uh, Chazal tend to be a little bit harsh with Orpah, um, because really compared to Root, you know, Root sort of rises above this, this pair and individuates in this really unusually, um, unusually kind it, to, to it, the it point. It reminds yeah. me also,
0: and we, th- we blenched this also in, in, I think the first episode, but it really reminds me of the pair, the opposition drawn between Noah and Avraham by Chazal. Mm-hmm. Meaning the psukim don't really, don't compare them, but Chazal compare them, right? That if he, right, would have been in, in Avraham's generation, then he wouldn't have been all that special. Um, but I think that that, that judgment of Noah there, is similarly, or that harsh judgment, I think is similarly a little bit unjustified um, also in that case. Again, we have questions about Noah and his behavior in that story. But I think here, you know, Orpah seems even more innocent and positive uh, even than Noach was. Meaning with Noach, we have questions. Why didn't he protest? Why didn't he daven? You know, things that become sort of commonplace for the prophet vis-a-vis the people and God. Um, but Orpah, I think, is is presented as even more even more wonderful uh, yeah. than Noach is in that way.
1: i just say one thing about Noach and Avram, and that is that like many Mitrashim, I think it is based on a textual comparison that's going on, right? Because Noach is described as, tamim haya bedoratav, et ha'elokim hitalech Noach, as opposed to Avram, where God says to Avram, hitaleich lifanai v'hayatamim. So there's the active and the passive, which I think is pretty much what Chazal are saying. Noach was obedient to a fault, yeah. but not not active, and Avram was active and therefore surpasses Noah.
0: Yeah, I understand.
1: One of the things that I think is important to note always about Midrash is that the Midrash, sometimes it's detached from the psukim, but more often than not, its ideas can be found in the text itself.
0: Yeah, I I think that it's it's there. I just think that the the comparison between them reminds me of the comparison between roots and Orpah, and I feel that for both of them we're Chazal are very critical of the of the contrasting character, yeah, in a way that just needs to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt, based on what also is written in the psukim. Um Okay, so that that's one example, I think, of uh, of root and orpa.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of um characters in Sefer Shmuel who function as a foil. We've already seen the Naar, the attendant of Shaul, who certainly is a foil for Shaul, uh, or seems to be, you know, highlighting. What Shaul does not yet have. Um, so we see the Nar has it and we kind of even more so think, well, why doesn't Shaul have money? Why doesn't Shaul have the idea of going to see the Isha Lohim? And, you know, we see that a lot with, with David, I think. So, you know, I'll mention, uh, maybe two examples. One example is Doeg Adomi. Yeah. He really only appears in one story. In um, in Sefer Shmuel, in in chapters twenty one and twenty two, the chapters of um, Achimelech, right, the, mm-hmm. the Kohen of Nov, uh, who obviously they're ha-
0: both redheads. Still, I'm making a joke, but yeah,
1: David and, David Doeg. and Doeg, absolutely, right. Well, I can yeah. talk about that in a moment. Well, mean, yeah, no,
0: I'm making a joke. i yeah. meaning one from Edom and one who is Admoni, but yeah,
1: right. But there's something that is that absolutely connects yes. David and Doeg there, and I think that that is maybe you know uh, part of it adomi we don't know, exactly know what it means probably it does mean that he comes from adome yeah. but of course adome does There's yeah, a, a play on words there yeah, also yeah there's definitely a play on words there um david is an admoni mm-hmm. right so there is definitely something that connects them there um but but more than that look, i will i want to say one other thing about doega adomi and that is that even though he only appears in one story and it's the story where he ends up being the long arm of shaul to violently massacre the Kohanim of Nov, because they helped David and because Shaul has sort of sunk into this terrible place of, you know, suspicion that, and and even paranoia that yeah. everyone's helping David and plotting against him to take the kingship away from him until, you know, we arrive at this really terrible scenario of the massacre of, you know, the, the Kohanim of Nove the, the, the priest, the whole city is massacred by Doeg. Um, but that, you know, Chazal do something interesting with the, uh, minor character of Doeg. And that is that they use him to fill in the blanks of many of the anonymous characters in Sefer Shmoel which is something that Chazal do. It's also worth uh, noting that, right? That's what we talked about. The
0: conservation of personality. Exactly,
1: right? The conservation of biblical personalities, but that sometimes there's a certain figure that Chazal sort of latch onto, and it becomes a very... They become
0: like the the fill-in in in all different cases. Yeah,
1: so Doeg is a, a ubiquitous figure in Chazal, even though he really only appears... Once in safer sh well, another example of that, by the way, is Datan and Aviram. Yeah, I was gonna say in the,
0: in the, all the Midbar stories. Yeah, in yeah, all the Midbar stories. They're like always the, the bad pure, guys.
1: They only pair ones yeah. in all of Tanakh, right? Only in the Karach story. Yeah. But they become any pair that is undermining Moshe, right? And so uh Doeg becomes David's nemesis. And you know, anything that seems to be um uh, someone who is trying to cast suspicion upon David in the eyes of Shaul, he is identified as Doeg, right? You know, so for example, at the very beginning of the story, when um, Shaul, or, you know, at the beginning of David's story, really, when Shaul is searching for a character, for, for someone to alleviate his, um, yeah, his, his ruach ra'a, his, his anxiety spirit. <laughs> and so, you know, they send out looking uh, for a person, uh you know, who is appropriate. And we have this, um this this Na'ar and he says, Oh he neiraiti ben liesai be talachmi I saw this son of Yishai and he's everything. He's Yodan again, the Gibor Khael, Vish Birchamah, Unvondavar, V Ishtoar, the Hashem Emo, right and all these descriptions that he gives of David, he knows how to play, you know, an instrument, and he's a a man of strength and a man of war and a man of understanding and a beautiful man. And God is with him. Chazal identify him as Doeg HaAdomi, mm-hmm. and and even say that Doeg is trying to plant the seeds of suspicion in Shaul's mind, which is interesting because that is, of course. Doeg's role later on certainly is the, not just the antithesis of David, but really the nemesis of David. But I want to suggest something beyond that. And that is that he is the foil of David, right? Of course, you uh, mentioned before that the Adomi and the Admoni maybe kind of, you know, have a word play between them. But how is actually Doeg described? He is the Abir Haroim Asher Lishaul. He is that strong, um you know a uh, uh, shepherd of of Sha'ul's men and that's that's David right okay. david is the abir haroim asher Sha'ul. and you know you have this kind of um figure of doeg adomi i will mention as an aside which i said to you before that the name doeg and the name david actually in gematria are the same name it's not my usual form of exegesis but it's kind of a a neat point but I think that the, the main point is, is that, you know, I think Doeg represents for David the road not taken. You know, who is Doeg? Doeg is the one who stays by Shaul's side as Shaul kind of spirals away from Darche Hashem, from what God wants him. Because of course, after Shaul is told by Shmuel, God's rejected you. You're no longer the king. Instead of stepping down as perhaps he should have at that moment, he remains kind of, you know, almost tenaciously um, clinging to his position, and it—it's it, not to his benefit, and it's not to Am Yisrael's benefit, because he becomes more and more—he um, he strays farther and farther from the path. And I think, kind of, the climax of the—the—the the, the troubling stories about Shaul is, of course, the story of. Uh, Kohanei Nov, when he turns to Doeg, and he enlists Doeg as the one who's going to, uh, uh, kill these 85 innocent priests. And how does he kill them? Meish the ad Isha, me olel ve ad Yonek, vishor ve right? All these categories of people, men, women, Children, I mean, siblings. That's what Shaul
0: didn't do in Amalek. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's the
1: opposite of Amalek. Yeah. And so Doeg is the one who sticks with Shaul even as Shaul kind of spirals in the wrong direction. And David pulls himself away from Shaul, forges his own path. Of course, this is partially because he's going to be the victim of Shaul's suspicions. But Doeg perhaps represents for David what would have happened to David had David. Um, uh, stayed with Shaul and stayed on the path of Shaul. And so I think Doeg actually is a foil for David and and therefore becomes kind of disproportionately important in, in Chazal as well.
0: Another secondary character I think, uh, I think that's worth mentioning is, is Vashti, uh, in the, in the story of Esther. Now, of course, she's, she's a name character and she also, like Doeg, only comes up in, in one place and she doesn't come up again after that. Uh, but I think her role in, in the beginning of Miguel at Esther is also utterly informative. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that she's a foil for Esther. I actually think that she's, um, sets a precedent uh, for a stare after. Again, I know I'm, I'm going against possibly a little bit of the midrashic um, perspective on Vashti, which, by the way, there are a, whole, a lot of varied midrashim about Vashti. We, we tend to highlight some of the very negative ones. But um, but in the beginning of Migilata's stare, um, we we see her. We see her in Pasuk tet. Uh, and here we have represented as she's paralleled at the moment, so until this point, seems fairly in line with her husband, that she makes a woman's party, uh, while her husband has the men's party. Uh, and only seven days later, right? He says to all of his servants, And he wants her to come. Uh, adorned with her crown uh, to show off her beauty to everybody. And in the beginning of this first meeting with Vashti, we're introduced also to the really heinous approach to women that exists in, in Megillah Esther. Megillah Stare is very unique in its presentation of the Persian approach to women, and I believe that it's meant to be understood as something utterly negative, meaning we're, we are supposed to feel very critical and disgusted by the way women are treated in the Megillah. They're mentioned in many places. They're gathered like sheep uh, in, in many places, and and their beauty is emphasized over over everything else, which of course makes it even more moving when Esther becomes a leader uh, and takes that you know she got there because of her beauty, but she takes it to a very very different place. Um, but Vashti is the first one who sa- who stands up to this you know male uh, this male society that mistreats women in this way. But, right? I'm not, I'm not gonna come. I'm not gonna just be your, your trophy wife. I'm not interested in that. Uh, and she is sort of the first female character that we, we get a sense that while women are mistreated, the salvation will come through the women who are able to fight against this, this horrible debasing culture. Uh, and so, she is, you know, she's the impetus for Achashverosh's Achish, anger. Uh, she's the impetus for the need to look for a new wife, and so in that way, she creates the opening in which Esther can come and fulfill that role. But, but really, Vashti is there as the first precedent of what women are capable of doing if they can fight against the um, the abusive culture that they, in this case, are founded in a very big way in the Book of Esther.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll just add that it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, it it goes so beyond, uh, anything acceptable. The, the, the mistreatment of women, uh, to the degree that women are objectified as, um, You know, as, as, as bodies, right? Even as dead bodies. I'll just mention as an example that in the description of the preparation of each woman Mm. before she's allowed to come into the, into the king. So we're told she has to soak in, you know, one kind of oil for six months and another kind of oil for another six months. And the Pasuk tells us (laughs) because that's how much time it takes to, you know, properly um, uh, you know, embalm themselves. And that exact same expression only appears in one other place in Tanakh. And that is in the description of the mummification of Yaakov yeah, right? the of ken yim mm-hmm. at the end of Sefer. Bereshit. So the objectification of women in the story of Esther is constantly being sort of indicated in all sorts of subtle ways to the degree that at some point any any woman in the story is who who has a sense of self is going to refuse the king's request, which might seem innocent, but is really deeply, deeply disturbing.
0: Yeah, and I think that that Vashti is, you know, she's a bit of a, a hero in the beginning of the story, and and. Esther will take it much, much further, meaning she'll take her refusal to the place of, you know, national salvation. But certainly on the level of the individual, Vashti is there to let us know that, you know, women have the capability to, to fight against this kind of culture um, and,
1: and the dangers that it entails. Yes. So by the time yes. Esther comes around, she is well aware that what she's about to do is going to endanger her life. Yes. So that's also another important role that Vashti has. For, for teaching us Esther's uh, courage and you know despite the fact that you know you don't want to go the way of the of the first wife I will just say by
0: the way that I think that on a, on a broader level they very often when women try and do something new in the world or ambitious uh, there is often and I would say even just when any humans try and do something new there is a risk that the early generations take when they make change I, mean, I think it's beyond the woman question um, and that sometimes it costs them their life whether that means their reputation or that means their future career development. And it's a gift to be able to be a continuing generation that you have those those moments, still, I wouldn't even call them mistakes. They're just natural consequences of what happens when you're trying to do something utterly countercultural. Um, and Vashti is that she's the revolutionary in that sense of the of the female role. And Esther is coming in with that awareness that almost paralyzes her, right? And almost paralyzes her. Uh, but coming in with that awareness and ultimately can take that initial revolution and take it a few steps further because of of Vashti's initial heroism. So,
1: so Vashti's not a foil. She's a uh
0: I think she's a, a precedent. I think she's a she's a, an early example that that Esther consciously learns from.
1: How about if we move on and talk specifically about unnamed figures in Tanakh? Yeah. Um our unnamed figures, we assume, I think, at first glance, that they're going to be secondary characters because they don't have a name. Um, but that's not always true. And, and it's interesting. Look, you know, it was very obvious, I think, that the, that the example that I started out this program with, um, the ish that finds, you know, Yosef wandering in the field, that he's a secondary character because he has a cameo role. He pops in and then he disappears. He doesn't get a name. He has all of the characteristics of secondary characters. But sometimes we have secondary characters or sometimes we have characters that may appear to be secondary and are not or characters that may appear to be na- main characters but are in fact secondary. Okay. Um so you know I I mean let's say an example of um what I think it, who I think is a secondary character who is unnamed is Evid Avram. Right and that's despite the fact that Evid Avram who is chosen by Abraham in Dalit, right in chapter twenty-four, to go and bring back a wife for Yitzchak, and he becomes, of course, a major character in the story. He may even be the main character in the story, but he's never named. And he's only ever called. And of course, you know, because Rashi names him and calls him Eliezer, many, many people just sort of refer to him offhandedly as Eliezer. But it is really important to note in the story that he's only ever called either Haish or Eved Avraham. And what's interesting about the story is that he emphasizes how marginal Yitzhak is to his betrothal story, right? He does sort of seem to be a foil. For Yitzchak, um, he's unnamed, but he's not even Eved Yitzchak. He's Eved Avraham. Yeah. So that Avraham becomes pretty much featured in this story of Yitzchak's betrothal and the Eved who, uh, you know, does all of the things that we expect Yitzchak to do. Yitzchak to do. Yeah. And, and any man in his betrothal scene to do. He does all this as a proxy, but not a proxy for Yitzchak, a proxy for Avraham. So there's something that that is going on here, which is, you know, kind of interesting because it really emphasizes uh, both um, Yitzchak's passivity and Avraham's very outsized role in Yitzchak's betrothal story. So I would say that the Eved Avram is a secondary character even though he seems at first to be a main character.
0: Mm, interesting, right. Meaning definitely in terms of the amount of psukim that are devoted to him, he gets a tremendous amount. Um, and uh, it's, it's an interesting definition because I think that in the actual narrative itself... I don't know if I would call him a secondary character, but we're supposed to understand that he is secondary to others. And that's why he doesn't get a name. Meaning he, he's the protagonist of that story. Yeah. He, he's the he's the only one acting. Um There's even a great theory out there. I don't remember who said it, who think that Rifka thought she was actually marrying him. Right. And that's why when she sees Yitzhak, she falls off uh, because she thinks that she's actually there to marry the Eved and not to marry uh, Yitzhak. Interesting theory. It's something to, to ponder, but he's a protagonist of that story, but his, his generational role or his um, his his national role, I think, is meant to be secondary. I have to think about the definition. I, I totally agree with you that his anonymity is very significant here, and I, I agree with the, all that analysis. But I feel like on a literary level, I, w- I look at him as a protagonist of that story, even though he's certainly meant to be understood completely and utterly as subservient to Abraham. And okay, I, well, yeah.
1: you know, we could argue that point, but I, I think the more important point is to note. Those features. Yeah. Yeah. That, of course. You know, it's just
0: a semantic argument. Yeah. yeah totally. Um,
1: you know, but then there's another example, let's say of an unnamed character that is very clearly in my mind, the protagonist of the story. And I mean, I think there are several examples, but the example that I'll take for now is, uh, Eishet Manoach. Now, you know, Rev Breuer, who is a pretty sharp, uh, sharp person, he used to call Manoach. Ba'ala Shel Eshet Manoach. Right? Yes, the husband he, of
0: Mrs. Manoach. The
1: husband of Mrs. Manoach. So she obviously receives a name based on her husband, right? She's called Mrs. Manoach, uh, wife of. But what Rev. Breuer was pointing out is that, you know, he is very much a secondary figure in the story, and she's very much the main character in the story. For those of you who don't remember the story, I'll just uh, kind of, you know, review the story, which is in, Paragud Gimel and Sefer Shoftim in chapter 13, and uh, they're the parents of Shimshon. They get a whole paragraph, a a whole chapter about them, and she's one of the classic barren women stories, and the, you know, the Malach comes to her and promises her a child and tells her about the child's destiny, right, he's going to start to save Amisar El from the police team, and she runs home to her husband. Of course, he also tells her that, you know, this child is going to have to be a Nazir, right? He's going to be a Nazirite from the time that he's born, and you have to be very careful. Don't drink wine, you know, be very careful in your pregnancy to maintain his purity, you know, his, his in utero Nazirite status, which is very interesting. And she runs home, and she tells her husband, Manoach, what happened, and she tells him, but she doesn't tell him everything. She never tells Her husband Shimshon's divine destiny. She never tells her husband what Shimshon is designated to do, to what end, uh, you know. This miraculous birth is about to happen, and ultimately, of course, Manoach um, is disturbed by this. Right? So he says, "Wait, I I need the Malach to come back to me and and tell me what we should do with this boy," because she skipped part of the information. And so Manoach prays to God, and the, the the Malach comes again. To her, right? Yeah. And so there's something very ironic about the story. What, what I'll close by saying about this particular story is, is that, you know, she, um, has all the information and she's clearly the wiser of the two, right? She knows yeah. right away that he's an angel and Manoah gets hint after hint after hint that he is, uh, meeting an angel and he never quite absorbs the message until the angel disappears, you know, in a flame of fire, and then az yada manoach kimal malach hashem hu, right? Only then does manoach know. She knows right away. So she's clearly very intuitive. She's clearly very, um, uh, um, he, you know, she's clearly very smart. Um, but she doesn't seem to particularly want her son to have a divine destiny and she kind of evades it. Uh, not kind of. She does. And she never tells Shimshon. She's the only one that has the information as to, you know, what he is supposed to become. And she never tells him she could have when Shimshon comes to to his parents and says, "Well, I, I met this great police woman. you know I'm going to go marry her." Her husband speaks and he says, really? You want to go marry a plushy woman? You can't find a nice Jewish girl, right? That's what, that's what he says. And she's silent. And even though she has the information.
0: And she's noted as being present. That's the important gosh. meaning. She's noted. It's not just that he has a, he has an interaction with his father, but she's noted as being present in that moment. Meaning mm-hmm. she doesn't disappear from the story.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I would conclude by saying that Manoach is righteous, but not very intuitive. Uh, which is something that Chazal do say about him, that he was, they say, Manoach am right? Manoach was, was, everyone was recognizes
0: a, that he was a bit slow on the uptake.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and Ashat Manoah, I think, was deeply intuitive, but not particularly righteous, at least in the sense that she is not interested in having a miracle child born with a divine destiny. It
0: also okay. connects to the fact that she's one of the women who doesn't seem to be in distress about not having children, right? We mentioned that I believe in a first episode she doesn't dive in for a child. We don't have that part of the barren woman scene, yeah. so she may not even be particularly looking for this mission.
1: Well, especially because the mission
0: will I, turn out to be quite complicated. Her child, it always
1: is. Every miracle child born to yeah. a barren woman in Tanakh has a divine destiny, which is is one that is is you know, dangerous and 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 that I think represents life to some yeah. degree, right? Every child is born into a divine destiny, and one has to struggle to fulfill their divine destiny. she doesn't want it
0: right. But here you would say that her anonymity is almost like a punishment for not being righteous.
1: I would say that her anonymity that her name is taken away from her because she doesn't fulfill her divine destiny,
0: What?
1: yeah. That's what I would say about her, but you know there are different uh, opinions about her, and that's not the. I think
0: the other the other approach that I've also heard. I, I if I don't want to misquote him, but I believe um, Professor Uriel, Uriel Simon also writes in an article. Is that he he talks about the fact that the narrative comes to highlight. As we said, sort of like the obtuse nature of Manoach himself, right? He just doesn't get the hints and he keeps wanting. He's, he's chasing after the Hitgalut after this revelation. And then when it finally does come, he doesn't actually get it. Uh, and the, so the narrative sort of goes, it focuses on Manoach, even though clearly the, the character who, who pulls us forward is the wife. So, meaning by, by keeping her just named according to him, it sort of serves to emphasize even more so. <laughs> Excuse me. Sort of emphasize even more so how much he he doesn't really get what's going on. But uh, that's that's interesting. I'll have to think about that. Um, wow. Well, I think uh, to close with one more example for today is uh, another example from the Book of Shoftim. Uh, there are a number of uh, a number of other anonymous women. I think they all have they all have different roles. Um, but I think it's important to note that. Uh, the, Yiftach's daughter, uh, and also the concubine from Giv'ah, uh, from the story of Giv'ah, which in a minute I want to broaden the discussion of the anonymity in that story, but those women are anonymous and I believe they are, it highlights their victimhood. Um, and that sort of also just to round out sort of this list of what we've mentioned of why a character can be led, uh, left anonymous. Sometimes they're anonymous because they're a secondary character. Sometimes they're anonymous because, uh, and they can also not be anonymous, but there could be a foil, perhaps, these secondary characters, whether anonymous or not. Um, and sometimes it uses the word victim or a loss of identity. And I believe that Bat and certainly the the Legish are women whose identity sort of is is taken from them. Um, and and that I think is is a, is a significant piece as well. But to broaden that, there's another function. Of anonymity, uh, and that relates to all the other anonymous characters in the in the story of Pillegish Um Towards in that last really significant unit of stories from chapter seventeen to twenty one, in Sefer Shoftim. Where you have just in the in the story of Giva, everybody is anonymous, and you have the Levite who's anonymous, and you have the obviously the concubine and her father, and the men from Benjamin, uh, and 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 every character mentioned. In the narrative is is anonymous, and there are a lot of discussion, um, certainly in the academic literature, as what the anonymity is clearly intentional, and that's another question, just from a literary perspective, that we often have to ask is. How much is the anonymity intentional? How much is it not? Now, when you're talking about an entire narrative, clearly the anonymity is going to be intentional. If it's a very secondary, minor character in a story, so the anonymity sometimes is there is just to keep the narrative flowing so we don't get distracted by another character. And then when those really minor characters are named, we have to ask ourselves, why are they named? Which comes up in Sefer Shmuel all the time. And also we have a few examples in Miguel Atastair. Um, but here where every character in the narrative is anonymous, we have to, ask ourselves why, why is everyone anonymous? Even the clear protagonists of the story. Um, and, you know, this is probably one of the most gruesome, horrific stories in all of Tanakh, certainly in, in the book of Shoftim. Um, again, just in, in broad brushstrokes, we have here uh, a Levite whose concubine, it's, he's not her full wife. She's not his full wife who leaves him. She goes back to her father's house. He goes to retrieve her. Uh, he ends up staying for a long time, seemingly just schmoozing with her father and not really doing any rectification with his wife. Eventually he takes her. Uh, he stops because he fears that he is not going to make it in time. Um, and he doesn't want to get stuck. In, uh, in a non-Israelite city, he stops in the area of Benjamin, thinking that people will take him. We have a lot of questions about this Levite, about why he makes his decisions. He could have made them uh, in a more in, in a smarter way. And he ends up going to Benjamin. They have a fear of strangers. It is very similar to the city of Stone. Uh, they actually want to, um, they want to violate him. Uh, and in a last ditch effort to save himself, he sends his concubine out. I'm skipping a few stages of the story, but that's really the thrust of it.
1: It's a Stone-like story.
0: It's a Stone-like story. Uh, the real, the real story there is a fear of the other. It's not necessarily, a, and it becomes a story about rape. Of women, even though that wasn't the initial, not that the initial intent was positive, but that wasn't the initial intent of the of the mob that was waiting outside the door. Um, but in that story, I think one of the really compelling explanations for why everybody is anonymous is that it's presenting the everyman of the period of the team, meaning... Where, where the nation has sunk at this point, it presents us with the fact that this Levite, they're supposed to be these cultic figures who are, you know, more holy than others. Um, nope. They're not like that. All of them, they could be the anonymous Levite that actually was in the story before this one in, in chapter 17 and 18, who they just become Levites for idolatrous temples. Uh, and they could be this Levite who, doesn't seem to have any clear cultic role, but he also has a house that is utterly falling apart and a wife who doesn't take care of. Uh, and we have here this woman who, again, I think is anonymous for the for her victimhood, uh, s- symbolizing the fact that she is just um, an object in the eyes of all these people, which again is presenting the negative societal state at this point. There are a lot of times the treatment of women, the negative treatment of women is a reflection of the moral state of the, of the people at that time. Uh, it's not meant to be taken as a given, or that's how women were treated. I don't think Tanakh ever really presents women in that way at all. Um, but here we really have that this is how everybody could have behaved at this point in history. And so the anonymity serves there to sort of blur the identity of them because if it was, it could have been in Benjamin, it could have been in Ephraim, it could have been in, uh, you know, in Zvulun, it could have happened anywhere at this time in history.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's correct. I also would emphasize that when you have a society of unnamed people, you're talking about a society w- where people are alienated one from the other, where people don't see each other as having agency, as having dignity, as having subjectness. So, I mean, you know, unfortunately, we have a terrible example in our century of what happens when you take away people's names and you replace them with numbers. And that's when you look at someone opposite you and you say- you they dehumanize don't dehumanize them. Right, they don't have the right to a name to food, to safety, to dignity, and that 's really what these chapters are about it 's about a society that has unraveled in terms of their interactions with with each other yeah, i I will add that I think that that is one of the goals of Migilat root Migilat root's stated goal is la Hakim Sha Yeah, the emphasis on names there is very,
0: very prevalent
1: yeah, which I would you know sort of paraphrase as saying. The goal of Migilat Ruth is to restore names. And you know, just to add to what I was saying before about Eshet Manoach, I think that there are several examples in Tanakh where someone fails to fulfill their divine destiny and therefore doesn't get a name. And a very good example is Ploni Almoni, who in Migilat Ruth was supposed to restore the name of Naomi's family and instead is called No-Name. And, you know, so, I mean, it's so symbolic that he doesn't get a name and, and Hazal kind of pile onto the symbolism by suggesting that his name was Tove. right? He was his, he was supposed to be named good, but because he wasn't good, so he, he loses his name. But I, I would look at it in, in a, in a more, you know, in a broader sense that when someone deliberately doesn't get a name, it suggests that they have failed to live up to their, to their individuality, to their personness. Um, and and that 's more than just i mean i I brought Mrs. Manach as you know an example of this, and you know you can agree or disagree with that particular example, but it does appear in other stories as well that someone can lose their name because they haven't lived up to it
0: hmm. that's really interesting um, you know, I think just to close the episode for today uh, and the next episode will be looking specifically at women. Uh, we've sort of mentioned a number of different features. And I think that just by our discussion, you see how important individual assessment of each narrative is, meaning there are some sort of broad guidelines. But but every narrative has to be understood in its own context, in its own context within that book. Uh, you know, how much that book places emphasis on character, how much the particular narrative is emphasizing the protagonist and the secondary characters, how much it interplays with anonymity. So really the individual context is really significant, but we did mention some just as a, as a summary we mentioned that uh, that sometimes secondary characters are meant to be foils. Sometimes they're meant to be there to uh, to highlight another aspect of the narrative. Sometimes the anonymity is there to obliterate the identity of the character, and sometimes the anonymity is there to, is Dafka to highlight the character but to highlight a certain aspect of the character. So each each uh, each situation needs its own analysis. But this has been fun. Thanks, Yael.
1: Thank you, Yosefa.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback. At podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.